Hello, this is Oliver Wong of Both Soul Sides and the Heat Rocks podcast. And this is a little mini episode that I prepared in response to uh, topics that I asked people what they would be interested in having us punch out. And this is meant to fill both my time and your time during our social distancing days. I'm going to answer two questions here. And these were both posed by Eric Peterson on the Heat Rocks Facebook page. I just really like the question, so I don't mean to be playing favorites, uh, though I actually will have another episode where I answer another two of his questions. So good job, Eric. You, you came up with stuff that I really like to, to be able to get into. Starting with, he asked, tell us about your fave lesser known bands or artists throughout your life. Example, in college, I was really into dot, dot, dot. And I took this question quite literally, which is I went with that last part in terms of what was I into in college. And one of the groups that certainly came to mind, especially perhaps a little bit beneath the radar, uh, relatively speaking, would be The Coup out of Oakland, California and their 1993 album, Kill My Landlord. Presto with the communist manifesto, gorillas in the midst of the bomb and amanesto. So, what a brother with an afro now. Yo, go a flow for the Mac and who the hoes. I'm pretty sure the way I learned about the group was they were featured in what used to be, I think it was a monthly free music magazine called BAM, Bay Area Music, that you could find at local record stores and probably circa 1993, right around the time that they released their first album. They had a profile about the coup focusing specifically on Boots Riley, who was the head of the the, the group. Uh, E-Rock, who was one of the other rappers, and then Pam the Functress, who was one of the rare women DJs of that era. I think really the only other example I could think of was uh, maybe Spinderella, who was the DJ for Salt and Peppa. But Pam was definitely a big, big part of the group, and sadly we lost her a few years ago to a long-term illness. One of the things that really set the coup apart was that their politics were, number one, very overt, but I think slightly different than how we typically had thought about hip-hop and politics in that era. So whether you're talking about a public enemy and coming out of New York or Ice Cube from Los Angeles, this was very much reflected of the particularities of racial and class consciousness in the Bay Area. So you think about the legacy of the Black Panthers in Oakland, the fact that Boots Raleigh was a self-described card-carrying member of the Communist Party. If I recall, E-Rock was a dock worker in Oakland, in West Oakland, and so uh, which made his availability to record with the group challenging at times. But the point here is that the coup, unlike a lot of other Rap groups, especially of that era, were highly critical of not just racism, but capitalism. And this comes through again and again across Kill My Landlord. Capitalism is like a spider. The web is getting tighter. I'm struggling like a fighter. Just do us loses like a noose. Asphyxiation sets and Just when I think I'm free, it seems to be the spider steps in. This web is made of money, made of greed, made of me. Oh, what I have become in a parasite economy. In the winter, One of the other notable things about Kill My Landlord is that the coup is working with a live band on this album. And you got to remember, this is 93. The roots don't really come out nationally for another year or so. So the idea that a hip-hop group would be working with a band for their backing tracks rather than purely sampling 
and there is samples, there are samples on this album, but a lot of the music, the bass lines, the drums, etc. you hear are being played by musicians. And I remember reading somewhere that Boots Riley was not necessarily enamored with the final sound of the album, and I don't think it was necessarily meant to be a criticism of the band, rather that what he imagined, what he wanted the album to sound like, it didn't quite get there, which really surprised me because I always thought this album sounded fantastic. I used to kick it with a brother named Mo. Mo used to kick it with a brother named Joe. Joe used to kick it with his girlfriend, Lakeisha, whose brother Elmo looked like me. Elmo used to elbow lots of brothers in the nose. Kick him when they're down and he still they shoes and clothes. Elmo would develop lots of beef as a tweaker. And all of them are supposed to come looking for me. For those who got turned on to the coup, it's more likely that it would have happened with their second album, Genocide and Juice, which I think got a slightly better promotional push. The singles off of it charted higher. Uh, and then The Coup would go on to release, to me, one of the best albums of the 1990s. And this was in 98 with an LP called Still This Album. But I have a really soft spot in my heart for Kill My Landlord. And I think part of it is because oftentimes with other groups who put out a debut, you can kind of get a sense that they're still feeling their way through their identity and their sound. And so in hindsight, those debut albums can sometimes sound a little bit unfinished or unsure of themselves compared to later LPs where you feel like an artist really comes into their own once they have, once they've gotten that debut out of the way. I think with the coup, Despite Boots' feelings that the sound of it wasn't quite to what he wanted, to me, this is as good as a, of a debut as you could ask for. And in terms of the kind of identity the group is trying to put across, their politics, their style, that was all there from jump. They didn't need one or two or three albums as training wheels to be able to get to the point where they have a more fully fleshed out vision of who they want to be. I feel like that was part of the group since its very inception. And so if you've never heard Kill My Landlord or if it's been a while since you've sat with it, go back and take a listen to it. And what you'll hear is a group that had already achieved a level of maturity and security and confidence with who they were, what they represented, how they wanted to come off. As well as they have a really good sense of humor because despite the stridency of their politics and as political as this album is, Boots and E-Rock and Pam they also knew how to have a good wink and laugh, whether at themselves or at others, in how they observe the world. And I think you can hear this very well on what I would consider to be the fire track. Even though it's very, very short, I think it's less than a minute, which is Boots's Fuck a Perm. Apply three drips, rub softly with your fingertips And even though you flip, don't trip Cause now you're hip, and now you're slick it You grease it and you lick it And you're looking really wicked But your hair is now called good You're moisturizing, texturizing, relaxizing, civilizing But yo, I got a fro, so a bro's misunderstood Kitchen in the back, give me dap, I got a knapsack Knick-knack, patty's whack, cause in her mind is firm That's straight as in and out as black Cause black went out with tenement shacks But beauty is a natural fact, so I say fuck a perm there's actually a four-minute version on the B-side of the Dig It single. So if you really like that and you want the extended mix, there you go. Eric Peterson also wanted to know about artists or albums or songs that we're fans of and genres not typically covered on the show. And I can promise you that is a very, very long list. Partially because there are certain genres that we just haven't tackled very extensively on here. Jazz, for example. Gospel for another. Frankly, there's a lot of hip-hop that I would have thought we would have gotten into, but we haven't yet. 
But the one genre that I would pick to answer Eric's question has got to be Latin soul. And specifically, I'm going to talk here about Ray Barreto's album, Acid. By Latin soul, I'm talking about the music that emerged out of New York City in the 1960s and blossomed throughout that decade and into the 1970s. And what's always struck me about this is how it was started by a younger generation of primarily Puerto Rican-American, Cuban-American, Dominican-American youth who were growing up in New York, specifically in and around the East Harlem, Spanish Harlem parts of Manhattan. And they were not just growing up listening to the mambo or the cha-cha-cha of their parents. They were listening to American R&B and doo-wop and rock and roll and incorporating all of those influences into first Latin boogaloo music, which emerges in the mid-60s and then blossoms into a broader genre that we now know as Latin soul by the end of the decade. And it reminds me a lot of how hip-hop forms about a generation or half a generation later further north in the South Bronx, where you have this mix of funk and of disco and of Latin and of rock music, all of these things swimming around that DJs at that time merged together and eventually produced the roots of what we now think of as hip-hop music. Well, these kids in East Harlem were doing basically the same thing just a generation or half a generation earlier. The irony, though, is that Beretta was not quite of that generation. The folks like Joe Baton or Pete Rodriguez, the folks who really helped shape the early sound of Latin boogaloo music, these were folks who were teenagers and whose careers really began once the boogaloo blew up circa 1966 or so. With Beretto, he had been recording as early as 1958 and by the early 60s was already a well-established artist in the New York Latin scene. However, one big difference between him and other older Latin artists is that he did not seem to view Latin soul with disdain. Folks like Tito Puente, folks like Larry Harlow, they are very much on record as shitting on Latin boogaloo music, treating it as bubblegum, thinking of it as a watered-down version of Afro-Cuban styles. And once salsa came through by the early 70s and more or less wiped Boogaloo off the map, they were more than happy to see that happen. Barreto never struck me as being a snob or a Latin music purist in the same way. And in fact, he, in a lot of ways, was one of the progenitors of the sound of Boogaloo thanks to his 1963 hit, El Watusi. Film fans out there should look for a, a clip from Martin Scorsese's first full-length movie. It's from 1967. It's called Who's That Knocking at the Door? And it stars a very young Harvey Keitel. And in one of the scenes, it's just four minutes of El Watusi playing. No dialogue. It's just the song. And I won't spoil what happens in it, but let's just say that early in his filmmaking career, Scorsese understood how to use music to set tone, to tell story, establish character. It's a really, really fun scene. Uh, no, bebemos la sangre, 
anyways, back to Acid. This comes out in 1968 on Fania Records, which by this point has become the powerhouse New York Latin label in the city. And by no means is this Barreto's first foray into making a full-length Latin soul album. In fact, just the year before that, in 67, he released an album called Latino con Sol. So clearly this is an idiom and genre that he was more than comfortable with working in, but Acid is the pinnacle. Certainly, I think the album benefits from the fact that Barreto is, at this point, a Latin music veteran. He's not old per se, but he's been recording for 10 years and has just built up more experience, more knowledge as an arranger, as a composer, as a band leader, as a musician, and all of those strengths come through on this LP. It's not that I think Acid is inherently or far and away better than similar Latin soul albums of the same era. It's just that the difference in having that level of sophistication, but also embracing the genre in a way that I think, to go back to Tito Puente, he recorded Boogaloo songs as well because he felt like he had to, but that doesn't mean that those songs felt true to what Puente wanted to do as a musician. Whereas I think for Barreto and his Latin soul output of this era, it never felt like he was pandering or simply doing it to stay commercially relevant. This felt like something that he understood and that he wanted to express himself through. It's hard for me to pick a fire track off of Acid. Though the one that I think I keep coming back to the most is actually the title track, and it's not the most up-tempo, it is not the most fiery or energetic of the songs on the album, but it is the one that is the most, to me, mesmerizing and hypnotic. And maybe that makes sense for a song and album named Acid. I have this really distinct memory of the first time I heard that song being played out on a good sound system, which was at Bump Shop, the old party, I think it was a weekly series that a, a couple of folks, including Chairman Jefferson Mao of Ego Trip and Red Bull Music Academy fame used to do at APT, which was a club out on the west side of Manhattan. And just hearing this song being played loud on a good system was incredible. you all enjoyed this little mini episode if there's other topics that you would like us to tackle you can either leave a message for me via my independent personal website that's at soul-sides.com or post something to the heat rocks facebook group if you happen to be one of our audience members there until next time i'm oliver wong for both soul sides and heat rocks